This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome to Beyond the Ballot Box with me, Dafrin Johan. You're listening to What's Politics, where we delve into political concepts, ideas and questions and explore how they impact all of us. On today's episode, we are going to be exploring the concept of ideologies. What are they and what impact do they have on economic policies and decision making, as well as how various political ideologies have evolved over the years. As always, my guest is Assistant Professor Peter Beattie, who is a political economist and a political psychologist at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Welcome back to the show, Peter. Thank you, Dasha. Good to be here. So let's start with the definition and, and overall um, outlook of it. What are ideologies? So the word ideology gets used in, in a bunch of different ways. Oftentimes it has a pejorative connotation, like someone has a set of false beliefs that kind of clouds their their vision and that explains why they uh, engage in irrational political behavior. Um, but in political psychology, and I, I would like the whole world to use the word ideology in the same way, ideology just refers to the way that we organize our beliefs, our thoughts, our ideals that are related to politics. It's basically our view of how the world works and how it should work. How do we get from where we are to where we should be? So everyone, in, in that definition of ideology, everyone has an ideology. Uh, you know, if you don't pay attention to politics very much at all, your ideology might be extremely thin, very simple. But nonetheless, if you ask anyone, even the person who's the least interested in politics, they'll have some ideas about how the political system works and how politics would be uh, better done. And that is their ideology. Right. So is it important for people um, or political parties to have an ideology or think along ideological lines? Well, yeah, according to that definition, it's impossible for anyone not to. If if you're engaged in politics, you are trying to accomplish something. The thing Mm -hmm. you're trying to accomplish is part of your ideology. If you you want to uh, uh, liberalize trade, that is part of your ideology. It's a belief that if you liberalize trade, the economy will will be better for everyone. Uh, And that is your ideology. So by definition, if you're engaged in politics, you have to have your, your your thinking just by definition is organized according to your ideology. Why then? Um, I, I like how you phrased it, right? Because you, you said it is impossible for individuals or political parties not to have an ideology. But at the same time, um, you see a lot of um, new political parties, um, not every, but there are many who try to avoid talking about ideology at, you know, at, at all costs. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you ask them, so what is your ideology? They're like, no, we are above ideology or, or we do not want to talk about ideology. You know, uh, you know we don't think along ideological lines. Um, these are things that some political parties, um, some political players, and even some regular people um, tend to say. Why do you think that is? Well, that kind of gets back to the the pejorative definition of ideology right. as a, a kind of distorted thinking about politics that's separate and distinct from an accurate understanding of, of reality. That, I think, is just a fundamentally untenable way of thinking about ideology. There, there's no such thing. It actually reminds me of something uh, 
uh, sergeant instructor uh, yelled at me when I was in the, the Marine Corps uh, officer candidate school. He, he said, uh, uh, excuses are like anuses. We all have them and they all stink. And it just makes me think of ideology. You know, we all have an ideology. It's, it's absurd for a politician or a, a political party to claim that they're above ideology. Basically, what they what they're saying there is uh, our ideology differs from the ideology of our political opponents. We think the ideology of our political opponents is wrong and we think our ideology is correct. We just don't call our ideology an ideology. You'll see this a lot in in, in contemporary coverage of uh, the Chinese economy. I, I see this quite often. Uh, commentators saying that uh, the party used to be pragmatic, but then since Xi Jinping took over, it's now very ideological. And I just have to laugh at that because it really what they're saying is that <laughs> the the direction of the Chinese government in the 2000s, 1990s was more uh, uh, congenial to their own ideology and the direction of the Chinese government since Xi Jinping has been in a different direction from their ideology. So they're calling it now ideological because they're blind to the fact that their own beliefs about how the world should work, what the best economic policies are, et cetera, et cetera, is an ideology. You know, this reminds me, you know, of... Um situation or instances where certain um, pe- religious people say, you know, this is not a religion, it's a way of life, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and yes, it is. It can be a way of life for you. But the point is, it's still a religion, regardless of how you call it, right? Hinduism is a religion. Buddhism is a religion. Christianity is a religion. Islam is a religion. It doesn't matter how you want to phrase it. It's still a religion. It fits within that definition. Yeah. So I recently went on holiday to Hanoi in Vietnam, um, spent many hours in their museums. And one of the quotes I came across at the Vietnam Museum of National History, um, which I'd like to get your thoughts on, right? And and it says... Mm. Um, if, if a party wants to be strong, there needs to be a doctrine which must be the essence and each party's member must understand and follow this doctrine. The party without doctrine is as the person without wisdom, the ship without compass. Yeah, right on. That that reminds me of something I went over in, in class last week. Uh, we read this uh, book by Wang Huning about the United States. It was like he got uh, some sort of award from a political science association uh, to go travel the U.S., visit different political science departments. And and I think that, that the expectation was that he would come back and write a book about how wonderful America was and its <laughs> democratic system and whatnot. Uh, and, and he does have a lot of uh, uh, words of, of praise for uh, the U.S. in the book. But, of course, he as an outsider, he he sees very well the the. Uh, the very serious problems. Um, so the, the Wang Huning book uh, about his visit to the U.S., he, he says that the parties in the U.S., the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, they're they're very strange. They're, they're not like a, a real party. They're more like a, a kind of network of franchises, like a KFC or a McDonald's, where in each individual location, you can kind of tailor the menu to the, the local tastes. <laughs> and that, that, I think, goes right along with that quote you just read from the Vietnam National History Museum, uh, because it's the, the, the parties in the U.S., while they do have an ideology, it's certainly not as unified, clear, and consistent as, say, you know, the, the uh, Communist Party in Vietnam at the time of Ho Chi Minh. How important is 
ideology, Peter, to be grounded, especially when we're talking about politics, right? How important is for ideologies to be grounded in economic analysis? Well, I I think it's uh, supremely important. I mean, if if you have if somebody has an ideology that does not include much uh, economic thought, it's it's just a form of it's an impoverished ideology. But basically, what that means in practice is that you uh, accede to, you adopt, you accept the dominant economic ideology. You just don't pay much attention to it. Um, so. Any, any view of how the world works and how it should work has to include some economic aspect. We're, we're economic beings. We, we, we survive because we're connected to other people who are doing things that we're not doing that, that supports the, the overall society. So to, to say that your ideology doesn't include any economic uh, ideas uh, first of all, is wrong because essentially what that means is you're just going to accept the economic ideas of the mainstream. Uh, but also, it's 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 uh, uh, just kind of political malpractice, really, to to not include uh, ideas about what economic policy should be in your view of you know how to make the world better. So, what were the main competing? political economic ideologies, um, what were, what are, of the contemporary world, right? So we are looking at um, 19th century, 20th century, and today, 21st century. What would you say are the main competing political economic ideologies? Oh, that that's a good question because it, it kind of, it asks for like, what do you exclude? Right. Uh, you know, what do you want to include, but more importantly, exclude? I'd say the, the, the ideologies at the kind of broadest level that are are most, I guess, competitive in the sense of uh, actually followed, believed in by people currently having political power uh, would be neoliberal capitalism, uh, the, the belief that uh, by having a, a relatively small government uh, that doesn't intervene in the economic system very much or to a minimal extent, uh, allow people with with wealth and economic power to do whatever they want with their power, um, to have a, a kind of free trade regime around the world where the the playing field is somewhat level. But of course, if you're uh, you know a, a, a 150 kilogram boxer facing a, a 100 kilogram boxer, a level playing field uh, isn't actually very fair. Right. Um, and of course, it's not even level because the, the rich countries engage in all sorts of subsidies for agriculture and high tech industry. So anyway, that kind of inconsistent ideology of neoliberal capitalism is still uh, still dominant around the world. Um, I, I don't like using these these like 20th century terms of of uh, socialism or or just capitalism on its own because there's so much diversity and within those big umbrella terms. Um, so instead, I guess I would say the the other like main competitive theory is or ideology rather is a form of uh, strong government that nonetheless uses market organization for the economy but has a, a, a much stronger role to play in organizing that market-based economy. Uh, so not just in terms of, of regulation, but also in forms of, of having a state presence in the economic sphere, like it, with state-owned enterprises or uh, uh, significant state 
intervention by means of subsidies or, or tariffs to protect uh, infant industry. Uh, so I guess on the broadest level, I would say those are the two main competing uh, political economic ideologies. One where power is very clearly held by people with uh, with money, with 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 ownership over big major resources, the means of production, the uh, uh, major industry, etc. Versus uh, the ideology that some people will call socialism, uh, but I would just rather keep the the label off and just say it's a form of uh, much more intensive state intervention in a fundamentally uh, market designed or, or market structured economy. So that's interesting, right? Because um, even in a previous show, you talk about how, broadly speaking, um, you can say that the competing ideologies of today are still capitalism versus socialism or, or variations of that. But even yeah. in, in a previous show, you, you prefaced it by saying that it is perhaps better if we left those terms behind. Why don't you like to use those terms anymore? Um, because I, if I remember correctly, in a previous show, you also talk about how maybe it's best if you start forging new terms. What is it that makes you... Um, um, wary of using those terms like socialism and capitalism. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, so I just I just said neoliberal capitalism. Mm -hmm. I'll give two examples. So even to use the word neoliberal to describe the uh, the the system, the political economic system of the richest and most powerful countries on earth right now, is almost doing a kind of injustice to the early neoliberals in the 1930s who had a, a much greater appetite for uh, forms of state intervention to help the, the poorest. Uh, even Friedrich von Hayek, one of the, the godfathers of neoliberalism in his book, Road to Serfdom, he accepted the idea of government as employer of last resort, you know, creating uh, uh, jobs to do socially useful things, and that anyone who's unemployed can simply go to the government and get employed to do, you know, one of these things. So, to even the word neoliberalism, which I, I still use, you can there is some slippage there between the 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 meaning that word had in the 1930s and the people who called themselves neoliberals, their thinking, and what we call neoliberalism today, which is quite different, is is much more like uh, classical liberalism in its economic policies and and way of looking at the economy. Um, nonetheless, I'll, I'll use neoliberalism because the, the way that that word is understood today, uh, I think, accurately describes, you know, the, the governments, the societies, the political economies that it's used to describe. Uh, for socialism, you know, there you have even more diversity of, of belief. You know, what does socialism mean? You know, I probably everyone listening to this, if you have friends, you know, more than two socialist friends, You've probably heard them argue uh, about, you know, what socialism means and which country is really socialist and which country betrayed socialism, etc. I feel, Peter, that more often than not, socialists are arguing among ourselves than with the others. Feel. Yeah, so I, what I, kind I, of socialism are you on? And, and which country is socialist and which country is? And that's another one that never ending debates. Exactly. So to, to avoid that sort of thing, uh, and just to, to kind of clarify our, our understanding, I try to avoid using that those terms like capitalism, socialism. 
Another example, even the word capitalism, you have people, you know, they're they're on the right. They they love capitalism. They think it's the best system, but they think that currently existing political economies that are called capitalist aren't really capitalist because they're too dominated by monopolies, for right. instance. They call or, it crony capitalism. Right, exactly, exactly. Right. So you, you, we run into all of these like semantic problems. I don't have a, a really a solution for that. Like what is the best word to, to use to refer to these systems in the 21st century? Um, I just, I, I feel like a bit of an allergy using these 20th century terms or even 19th century terms to describe realities today when so much has changed fundamentally. All right, let's go for a very quick break. On the show with me today is Assistant Professor Peter Beattie, who is a political economist and a political psychologist at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. We continue this discussion after these messages. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to What's Politics on Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Darshan Johan, and with me as always is Peter Beattie, political economist and political psychologist at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And today we're talking about ideologies. So Peter, another, um, you know, two big words that we often hear in political discourse is left-wing and right-wing. So what do these terms mean? Those terms I'm a little more comfortable with, mm. and maybe it's just because I, I interpret them from the lens of political psychology, where you have the this kind of concept of, of a left psychology and a right psychology. And left psychology and right psychology in the West do very closely map onto the content of, of left-wing political thought and right-wing political thought. But in other parts of the world, they may uh, conflict. So let me just uh, try to explain a little bit. So the the kind of political content of the left at its most kind of distilled uh, essential form is a desire for uh, greater equality and uh, for transformation, for change, for reform, for, for progress. And of course, I'm speaking in very general terms because there are so many different beliefs about what would constitute change. How do you create uh, a more equal society? And then on the right, it's, again, most distilled basic essence of that broad uh, body of of thought and ideas is a a desire for tradition, to to stick with what works or what is believed to have worked in the past, and an acceptance of hierarchy and the inequalities that that entails. Uh, And then these two, so that's like the basic kind of political content of of left and right at the most abstract level. And then left psychology are a bunch of psychological traits that tend to incline people towards a desire for equality and change. So things like uh, uh, the personality trait of openness, uh, the the psychological trait of uh, need for cognition or uh, having low need for cognitive closure, that is uh, wanting uh, or, or being excited by being interested by new ideas, new right. experience, meeting different people, um, uh, enjoying the process of, of thinking through tough questions and accepting of uh, not having definitive answers for everything. Whereas right psychology, the traits that tend to correlate with uh, right wing political beliefs, at least in Western countries, uh, are things like, you know, having high need for cognitive closure, meaning 
Uh, you, you're uncomfortable with, with open, unclear uh, answers to questions. You're, you're uncomfortable with ambiguity. You want clear, definitive answers. Uh, and you, you tend to have less openness. So you, you prefer to be with people who are similar to you. You prefer to uh, remain with traditions that you grew up with, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's my long answer to that question. But you, you talk about how, um, you know, this concept of left and the right is more clearly defined, um, at least in a conceptual level um, in the West. But from my observation, it seems like even the West um, tends to butcher these terms a lot or, or these terms take on different meaning in, in different countries. So, for example, um, if you only consume CNN uh, and Fox or, or just mainstream US media landscape, you will get an impression that the Republicans are the right wing and the Democrats are the left wing. But mm -hmm. I remember that um, in many of the interviews that we've done over the years, um, and even if you read research papers and whatnot, they don't paint the Democratic Party, especially over the past 40 years, as left wing. Um, and you talk about how, um, you know, you can't possibly be a left wing if you... Uh, bombing other countries, you know, frequently, yeah. um, you know, if you don't have a public health care system in the country, yeah. you know. So how do you make sense of that where, you know, these terms left and right are often, you know, skewed and, and, and butchered um, or take on different meaning to different people? Oh, thank you for pointing that out. I, I must have misspoke because what I, what I meant to say was that the uh, relationship between uh, these left psychological traits and left in the most broad abstract sense uh, political ideas is very apparent in uh, the Western countries where these these studies have been carried out. Right. Whereas, uh, for instance, ones that we're, we're doing in uh, East and Southeast Asian countries, uh, it's a little more complicated because the, the ideas that tend to attach to these psychological traits uh, are quite different in the political economic environments of other countries. So just to make that clear, that was a, a more kind of academic point. Uh, on the, the point you were making, I completely agree. The way that I was defining left and right were in the most abstract uh, uh, way I could possibly you know, define them so that they would be the, the biggest possible umbrella terms to encompass, uh, basically to, to categorize all uh, political ideas into one or the other. Like right. that's the level of abstraction you have to, to get to. So in that sense, even the the, the Democratic Party uh, in the U.S. would be more in that extremely wide left umbrella just in the sense of wanting greater equality, like tiny little step-by-step uh, uh, -step incremental sort of measures to, to, to uh, lessen the, the harshness of the economic system, um, uh, and wanting change, you know, like wanting uh, uh, more reforms towards a slightly less unequal uh, society. But if you look at what the, the meaning of left-wing ideology has been for, I don't know, a couple of centuries now, uh, the, the, the core actual idea elements, not the, the abstract description of them, would be uh, various forms of anti-capitalism, the belief that the, the uh, capitalist organization of economies is not the best way to organize our, our economic activities, and anti-imperialism, the idea that uh, we shouldn't have powerful countries being able to dominate other countries around the world. We should have a more democratic, 
uh, equal global governance system. And then the right would be exactly the opposite. Uh, it's still at a pretty high level of abstraction, but now we're, we're, we're trying to tie these abstract concepts to concrete ideas and decide which concrete ideas are the most representative of this very broad categorization. So yeah, I, I completely agree with, with what you just said by from looking at left and right from that perspective, the Democratic Party is, is barely left because it's not at all anti-capitalist, as uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, <laughs> told a, a, a young man uh, asking her about this a few years ago, we are capitalists. Uh, she didn't say we are imperialists, but uh, that's just because that that would be seen as, uh, I don't know, rude, impolitic, uh, <laughs> crass. Uh, you know, it's, that's more of a, a Donald Trump sort of thing. Um, but yeah, so the Democratic Party, because it's not anti-capitalist, it's not anti-imperialist, uh, wouldn't classify as left on a kind of global spectrum. How do you look at social ideologies? How do you frame social ideologies? Often in politics, um, people also talk about social issues, freedom uh. of the press, um, you know, um, freedom of speech, um, and the, the right to dissent and, and all these kinds of things, um, whether there should be the death penalty in the country or, or not. Oh, I, I just consider them to be basically the same as ideology in, in general. It's it, I, I see what you're, you're doing. So by social ideology, you mean people's ideology with respect to so-called social issues, right? like sexuality, uh, the death penalty, like you said, uh, in the U.S., guns, right. uh, et cetera. Yeah, I, I just consider that to be a part of people's overall ideology. You can kind of divide it however you like. You could you could take out like, quote unquote, purely political aspects like free speech, uh, or you could take out, quote unquote, purely social aspects like uh, uh, rights for people with a different sexuality than the majority. Uh, and you could separate out economic ideology, you know, people's uh, beliefs about the best economic system and, and how to get there. Um, I think social ideologies uh, are the fundamentally just the exact same as people's overall ideology. It's just a, a part of it. Do you think it is more beneficial when talking about these social ideologies to frame it as conservative versus liberal um, or authoritarianism versus libertarianism? Which do you think mm. is more beneficial? And the reason I ask that, right, because often the, the, the narrative is conservative versus liberal. But in my mm. head, I'm thinking, what if you are personally conservative, right? Mm. Um, you don't pers you personally do do not think getting an abortion is right, right? Um, because mm. you may have strong religious beliefs, but mm -hmm. at the same time, you don't think it is the government's job to get involved and make abortion illegal, right? You mm. you still believe in the right for people to get an abortion, but you right. don't think you should get an abortion, for example, because you have strong religious beliefs. Right. And that's why I ask, do you think it's more beneficial when talking about social issues to talk about conservative versus liberal or authoritarianism versus libertarianism? Or, or maybe both. So it right. sounds like the person you're talking about would be a conservative libertarian, someone right. who for themselves believes that, you know, the, the their religious beliefs about abortion mean that it's a it's a bad thing to do. They would not want you know, to, to do it themselves, they would advise their friends, et cetera. 
not to do it. But in terms of their beliefs about what the government should do vis-a-vis abortion, they say, well, no, the government shouldn't be involved in this. That's a power the government shouldn't have. So, yeah, maybe maybe that that kind of two uh, axis uh, categorization is helpful. Uh, maybe you could imagine someone who's uh, uh, <laughs> it's a little harder, someone who's liberal on that issue. So wants to who thinks that abortion is fine, but they're authoritarian. So if they, for instance, believe that uh, birth rates are going down too much, maybe they would say the government should make abortion illegal, even though personally, I think it's fine. <laughs> We talked about the economic ideologies. We also touched a bit on on how you should frame social ideologies. But there seems to be an attempt to paint politics in a sort of binary, right? You're either a progressive or you're not. You're either pro-freedom or anti-freedom, etc. So you either get freedom of speech, how it's framed, right? It's you either get freedom of speech and no public health care or no freedom of speech and great public health care. But Peter, that's not true, right? That's not how people should be buying into this because one can look at a country like Singapore, for example, and say they have one of the most progressive um, left-wing housing policies in the world, which we should learn from, but at the same time criticize their authoritarianism or or their nanny state, right? Uh, Both can happen. Likewise, we can look at a country like the US and admire them for their freedom of speech ideals, um, while also condemning them for their homelessness rate, the military-industrial complex, absence right. of public health care, etc. Because I think that's like a, a propaganda of sorts, right? From from various sides, both sides, whatever, right? It's this thing where you want freedom of the fre- you want freedom of the press. Well, look at the U.S. They have homelessness and mass shootings, but freedom mm-hmm. of the press didn't cause homelessness, right? Mm-hmm. I, and on the flip, uh, unaffordable housing caused homelessness. Neoliberalism caused homelessness, right? On the flip side, you also hear things like you want public housing. Well, then you get no room for dissent or personal freedom like in China or, or Singapore or you will get the you, you you will get the death penalty for my minor drug offenses you know but one can have you know both public housing and freedom of the press right what are your yeah. thoughts on this well at first I would be remiss not to bring up the the quip from AG Liebling who said uh, freedom of the press is guaranteed to all those who own one right so that's that's what freedom of the press really means yeah. in the in the US right um, but your broader point, I think, is is excellent. And it, you know, I, I don't know to what extent public opinion research uh, has been done as extensively in other countries as it has been done in the U.S., but I would assume that uh, the results of public opinion research that have been done in the U.S. are probably the same for many countries. And that is, it's just a pretty small minority, 10, 20 percent, maybe even less, of people whose uh, ideologies are, uh, quote unquote, constrained. And that means constrained to the the, the kind of dominant conception of, of liberal and conservative in the United States, where the you have a conservative position on a whole list of issues. And to people who are, are deeply immersed in that thinking, they understand, they have an understanding of why all of these different issues connect to each other and likewise on the the liberal side but it's really a minority of the population that thinks that way the majority when you when you look at uh, surveys asking people their opinions on various issues they're not their opinions are not constrained to the way of thinking of political elites meaning they might uh, be fully in, fra- in favor of free speech complete uh, non-regulation of anything anyone says 
but they might uh, believe that abortion should be illegal. They might think that uh, the, the U.S. military empire should be uh, wound down and, and shrunk. Uh, they, they have very idiosyncratic collections of opinions. And I don't have any reason to believe that that's not the way that uh, it is in every country on Earth, that you have a small group of people who are political junkies. They read a lot about politics, so they understand why in the, the dominant ideological perspectives in their country, certain opinions on a whole bunch of issues go together. But for the majority of normal people, they don't see why uh an opinion on issue A has to go along with this other opinion on issue B. And so they consider each individual issue separately and come up with an opinion that does not, or a mix of opinions that does not correspond to the mix of opinions of political junkies, of political elites. I'm also wondering if this perspective or this this idea of looking at politics as, as a very binary thing, right? Either you get all of this or all of that kind of thing. Also, also sort of impacts people um, from the US and the likes of Malaysia more, maybe a bit of the UK as well, because of our electoral system. It's this electoral college. It's the first past the post. Um, In the US, it's not called first past the post, but it's the same concept um, as the UK and Malaysia, where fundamentally what ends up happening is you have these two big coalitions and and. That's it, right? So it's either you, you, the people end up thinking along those lines, um, whereas perhaps in countries like Germany, uh, New Zealand, um, countries with um, proportional representation, you tend to think about politics in less binary terms because you can have um, a political party who is um, socially progressive, uh, maybe economically a bit uh, not so progressive as one party. You can have another party which is socially and economically progressive. You can have another party which is socially and economically regressive. And you can have another party just representing indigenous group rights, um, you know, with, with different sets of focuses and, and things like that. And you have all these different... You, you, you see the people are able to visualise that there are all these different ways of thinking and and it's not just either A or B. Yeah, that's a a really good hypothesis. Um, Given the the kind of hypothesis you just laid out, uh, I would have to agree. I I would guess that uh, in a a country with uh, proportional representation and multiple parties with different kind of ideological uh, uh, platforms, perspectives, uh, maybe you would find something like uh, a higher percentage of the population having quote unquote ideological constraint that is their their issue opinions match the 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 mix of issue opinions in the party that they support right um but because there are more options out there uh you you see overall this a similar degree of you know different mixes of issue opinions it's just that in those countries where there are different avenues to express uh, the, your particular mix of issue opinions, uh, maybe that's what's going on. That's a that's a really, uh, I think, good hypothesis. And maybe it's already been demonstrated. I'm just uh, unaware of the evidence. I'm, I'm wondering, Peter, how has globalization influenced the spread of ideological beliefs on a global scale? Are there particular ideologies that have gained prominence or faced resistance due to globalization? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, I think I would have to go back to neoliberalism to to start mm-hmm. to answer that. 
Uh, globalization is, a never, is another one of those terms that has, uh, it's a really big umbrella term. It has a, a bunch of different meanings. Um, but at, at any rate, I think neoliberalism in its current form, the, the basic idea that people with uh, ownership of resources should be able to do whatever they want with them, government interference should be minimal, uh, government support for the poor should also be minimal, that, that kind of basic form of, of neoliberalism, of course, that has spread uh, around the world quite effectively and through multiple means. There have been, there are uh, organizations whose goal is to spread that ideology all over the world. Uh, there's also just the the kind of uh, uh, follow the leader effect or the, um, uh, I'm blanking on the, the, the term, there's a bias where humans tend to uh, copy the behavior of uh, prominent uh, individuals or powerful individuals. So you have that kind of phenomenon uh, happening as well. The the fact that neoliberalism is is uh, embraced by the U.S., that adds a, a kind of sheen or legitimacy to uh, neoliberalism. That helps it spread. Uh, the fact that the, the global media system, to the extent that you can call it a, a system, but, you know, uh, uh, the, the various media systems of countries around the world uh, are still dominated by U.S. or, or, or northern rich country-based uh, media enterprises, that's another factor that, that helps spread neoliberalism. So I think that's a big part of how globalization has, has uh, spread uh, ideologies. But you know, re remember, globalization also can refer to uh, the fact that we have means of communication that right. are were unsurpassed. You know, that that you can't even imagine having the ability to communicate with people all over the world, even crossing language boundaries. Now that we have the internet, compared to you know the the pre-internet era, and that also allows for kind of a a more uh, grassroots. Uh, spreading of of ideologies, and I think that variants of what people would probably call socialism, just the idea that no, the current system we have is fundamentally flawed. We need to have more uh, government support for the poor, or and or we need more uh, government into the intervention in the economy to avoid ecological catastrophe. Those kinds of ideas, even though they don't have well funded. Uh, organizations behind them whose goal is precisely to spread these ideologies, I think that through more kind of grassroots mechanisms, people just communicating, people arguing on the internet, talking to each other, trying to spread ideas, I think that's another uh, uh, kind of ideology that has seen some uh, spread through globalization. You mentioned the media, which I'd like to quickly dive into a little bit because you are someone who is very passionate about the media and how they operate in today's world. I'm wondering how does contemporary the contemporary media landscape impact the dissemination and reinforcement of ideologies? Well, I mean, there's there's so many aspects of, of that that you could cover. The first one that... that pops up in my head are the the newest forms of media mm -hmm. uh, uh, social media apps where you have very little communication very little information it's mostly just a, a kind of clickbaity you know like uh, Twitter TikTok uh, but even all over the all sorts of different internet platforms uh, WhatsApp even uh, small bits of information, punchy, emotion-provoking uh, uh, messages. 
I think that those sorts of ideas have an advantage because of the the, the nature of the medium that uh, we're using. If it's you know Twitter, TikTok, it's it's all very short. Uh, even on the uh, on the web, you know, if you have a, a a very attractive title, something that's provocative, that will tend to spread versus a a, a very in depth, meaty, substantial analysis or critique. Um, so I think that's a, a a negative aspect of the current structure of of the media that would help uh, just simple ideas spread, and they don't have to be accurate. And the I, the example that pops up into my, my head first is just kind of anti-immigrant or xenophobic sentiment. That's a sort of, of idea or set of ideas that kind of has a natural advantage in a way, because it's, first of all, a very easy, simple explanation for economic pain. Hmm. It's, oh, it's these other people coming in and eating your lunch. Um, but it also taps into intergroup bias, which is just a evolved natural part of our psychology that doesn't necessarily need to be negative or xenophobic, but it's a kind of like groove in our brain that xenophobia can very easily fit into. So I guess those would be the the top of the head examples that that uh, come to mind. But uh, there are plenty of, of other ones if you if you want to explore that further. Perhaps we can explore that further on a show on itself. Um, before we wrap this conversation up, Peter, final thoughts, ideologies, do they matter? Yeah, ideologies are everything because they're not a form of bad cognition <laughs> or a, a, a veil that uh, prevents us from seeing reality. Of course, they, they can be precisely that, but ideologies are the way that every single one of us interpret the world and make sense of the world. And it's the way that we think about how do we make the world better? So it's unavoidable. Everyone has an ideology. They don't all stink necessarily, but certainly <laughs> everyone has one. Uh, and we just have to, I think we need to get over the kind of naive uh, way of thinking whereby we consider anyone who disagrees with us to be ideological and we ourselves simply perceive reality accurately. It's all these other people who have the veil of ideology over their eyes, preventing them from seeing reality the way that we do. No, we have an ideology. Our opponents have an ideology. It's just that they're different ideologies. So you need to engage, discuss, debate, argue, uh, maybe even collaborate. Uh, with other people to try to come to uh, uh, an agreement or, or some area where you can agree. On that note, Peter, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, Dashan. That was Assistant Professor Peter Beatty. He's a political economist and a political psychologist at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. If you missed any part of this conversation, you can also find us on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, Spotify, Apple, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.